While Israel aims to destroy Hamas so it can't attack again, the popularity of Hamas seems to be soaring among Palestinians and the West Bank. This idea that Gaza was capable of challenging the military occupation was seen as an inspiring act of resistance. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, the president of Ukraine is in the midst of a trip to Capitol Hill to try to convince Congress to give more weapons and aid to fight Russia. And part two of our report on mothers who've taken it upon themselves to watch over their children who are engaging in the illegal drug use at home to make sure they don't overdose. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is back in the United States for the second time since September to personally appeal to members of Congress to state the course. His country's caught in a political impasse on Capitol Hill. House Republicans are demanding stronger border security commitments before they advance President Biden's request for additional money for Ukraine. They're led by Speaker Mike Johnson, who met with Zelensky today. What the Biden administration seems to be asking for is billions of additional dollars with no appropriate oversight, no clear strategy to win, and, and none of the answers that I think the American people are owed. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the stakes are too high for democracies worldwide to not continue supporting Kyiv. If you care about our national security, if you care about our commitments to our allies and our partners and our friends like Ukraine, uh, it's in, it's impossible to believe that anybody could could not vote to continue uh, a measure of support uh, for Ukraine. President Biden's been meeting with Zelensky this afternoon. NPR's Domenico Montanero notes there is little consensus among Americans about whether they want to provide support to Ukraine. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds that people are very much split on what to do. About half of respondents say to provide funding to Ukraine, but almost four in ten say they don't want to fund either the war in Ukraine or the war in Israel. Democrats are more likely to say to fund both conflicts, but Republicans who've grown more populist and isolationist since former President Trump's election in 2016 are more likely to say not to fund either one. But it's not just Republicans. Younger and non-white voters are also more likely to say don't fund either war. And among those saying that they don't want to provide support to either country, non-white respondents were second only to Republican women. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. A new analysis warns that poor families could be turned away from a key healthy food program next year. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports it comes as the budget standoff in Congress drags on. Congress's temporary budget includes flat funding for WIC, a program that provides nutritious food for pregnant mothers and young children. But its enrollment is up sharply, along with food prices. Around the country, food pantries say they keep seeing more people, even as inflation eases. Without more funding for WIC, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities says up to 2 million people could be denied benefits over the next year. It warns even a delay in extra funding could force some cutbacks. The new report says that eligible people have never been turned away from WIC before, as it's had strong bipartisan support. The next deadline for Congress to reach a budget deal is mid-January. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. U.S. stocks end the day higher. The Dow closed up 173 points, or nearly half a percent, to settle at 36,577. 
It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Harvard community are standing behind President Claudine Gay. The university's highest governing body issued a statement today reaffirming its unanimous support for Gay. She is facing scrutiny for her comments during a congressional hearing last week on anti-Semitism on campus. President Gay has the support of Harvard staff member Shia Rondeau. She is brilliant and she's a kind leader. I know it's a very complex time for someone in her position to be balancing all of the really, really, really complex social aspects of this and all the pain that people are undergoing. This week, 700 faculty members signed a letter urging school administrators to keep Gay in her post. The president of the University of Pennsylvania was ousted after her testimony at the same hearing. MIT's president received the support of her school. The suspended chair of the state's Cannabis Control Commission is asking a judge to open her upcoming administrative hearing to the public. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Shannon O'Brien says she deserves a chance to clear her name and return to her role overseeing the state's $5 billion cannabis industry. The state treasurer suspended O'Brien in September, alleging she made racially and culturally insensitive remarks at work. O'Brien says her words were taken out of context and that Treasurer Deborah Goldberg does not have the authority to remove her. The two were originally supposed to meet behind closed doors last week, but O'Brien petitioned a judge to delay the meeting. In a new court filing, O'Brien asks the same Superior Court judge to order that the hearing be public. The treasurer will be represented by the attorney general's office and is expected to file her response in court tomorrow. O'Brien is not the only high-level suspension at the embattled commission. Two top managers also were suspended last week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will deliver her annual State of the City address Tuesday, January 9th at the MGM Music Hall in Fenway. This will be Mayor Wu's second State of the City address. 41 degrees now. It's been pretty nice out there. Lots of sunshine. Sun sets in just about six minutes. And we should have clear skies into the evening and overnight tonight. Should fall to about freezing tonight. Tomorrow, sunny once again. Breezy up around the low 40s. This is WBUR 41 degrees at 407. WBUR supporters include Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky took his appeal for more U.S. funding for his war against Russia to Capitol Hill today. After Zelensky visited with lawmakers from both parties, he headed to the White House to sit down with President Biden. Congress needs to pass a supplemental funding Ukraine before they break a holiday recess, before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is at the Capitol. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Ari. What kind of reception did lawmakers give Zelensky? A pretty warm one. Senators I talked to from both parties said Zelensky gave a really compelling presentation today. He heard bipartisan support in the room for his effort to defeat Russia. Zelensky walked through his military strategy and talked about his country's will to wage the battle against Russia. He even stressed that they have 40 and 50-year-olds signing up to fight in the war. Zelensky did field some questions about corruption in his own government. There are some Republican lawmakers who worry that the billions of dollars of additional U.S. aid could be spent on things other than weapons or humanitarian.
humanitarian aid. But the Ukrainian president stressed he's put reforms in place to show transparency. Did he talk about the current fight on the Hill, which is Republican insistence that money for Ukraine be tied to U.S. border security? He largely stayed away from that, getting into any domestic politics and stuck to his message. He just really needs America's continued support. But Republicans are staying united to try to press for tying aid to a border deal, even ones who are strong supporters of Ukraine. South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham told reporters he told Zelensky this morning in the meeting that he backed the war in Ukraine, but he told Zelensky he's worried about the warnings about all kinds of threats to the U.S. that are coming from all over the world, including at the border with Mexico. I owe it to the people of South Carolina, and every Democrat does too, to secure your own border. The FBI director told us last week that the lights are blinking everywhere. So it's not about helping Ukraine, it's about not helping us. And what can you tell us about Zelensky's meeting with House Speaker Mike Johnson? Did the speaker discuss where he stands on the funding package? Johnson said after the meeting he had a good meeting, that he stands with Zelensky against what he called Putin's brutal invasion. Johnson does have a record of voting against Ukraine money, but now he's open to it. But the speaker reiterated that any new money has to be paired with changes that reduce the number of people who are entering the U.S. at the southwest border. We needed clarity on what we're doing in Ukraine and how we'll have proper oversight of the spending of precious taxpayer dollars and the American citizens. And we needed a transformative change at the border. Thus far, we've gotten neither. And so, Deirdre, is Zelensky going to go home to Ukraine empty-handed? No, I mean, he's not getting everything he, he's hoping to get. I mean, President Biden did announce this afternoon that he's directing the Pentagon to send another $200 million from the, from the money that's already been approved by Congress. But this broader package of $61 billion is really just stalled out. The top Republican negotiator in the Senate who's working on this border deal, Jim Lankford from Oklahoma, says they're not going to get a deal this week. One thing that did change today is the talks do seem to be getting more serious. Top Senate leadership aides and White House aides are now involved, and they are narrowing down the types of border policies they're trying to address eventually to be paired with this broader national security funding package. Uh, Senate Majority Leader told the Speaker that he should keep the House in session as the Senate bipartisan talks continue. But without any sign that there's an actual proposal that can pass, it does look likely this national security package is not going to get through Congress this month. And Chair's Deirdre Walsh, thank you. Thanks, Ari. Filling your gas tank or your grocery cart puts a smaller dent in your wallet these days. Gas prices have fallen sharply in recent weeks, and grocery prices are starting to level off as well. Those are some of the most visible costs that consumers encounter on a regular basis, and they helped to keep the overall inflation rate in check last month. This welcome news comes as the Federal Reserve is meeting this week to decide how to proceed with interest rates. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi. So, Scott, inflation has been gradually cooling off in recent months. What did you learn from today's report? Today's report tells us that that cooling trend continued into November. Uh, prices overall last month were up 3.1% from a year ago. That's a slightly smaller increase than we saw in October. There was a big drop in gasoline prices, which helped to offset rising rents and other expenses. And what's more, supermarket prices are up less than 2% over the last 12 months. Food economist David Ortega of Michigan State University says that's the smallest annual increase in almost two and a half years. When it comes to food, you know, it hits very close to home because we go to the grocery store on a weekly basis. And so consumers are 
really attuned to the price level. And we're in the holiday season. So, you know, a, a lot of the holiday celebrations center around food. So it's something that people are noticing. If you're baking during these holidays, you'll be glad to know the cost of eggs has come back to earth. After soaring last year, egg prices are down about 22% over the last 12 months. Other grocery prices are still up, but they're no longer climbing as fast as they had been. Okay, that's some good news. Scott, what else is getting cheaper and what's getting more expensive? A lot of travel-related things are getting cheaper, uh, airfares, hotel rooms, also furniture and appliances. What's still going up in price is mostly services, restaurant meals, car repair, and, of course, housing. Uh, housing costs are expected to moderate over time based on what we're seeing with new leases, but that has been a slow process. And, of course, housing is a big part of many people's budgets. Right, and Scott, inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are meeting this week here in Washington. How are they likely to respond to today's report. You know, this report, along with the jobs report we got last week, is pretty much just what the Fed wants to see. Inflation is gradually coming down. It's not back to the Fed's target of 2%, but it is moving in that direction. And this time last year, a lot of people thought that to get inflation under control, the Fed was going to have to slam the brakes so hard with higher interest rates, it would send the economy into recession and throw millions of people out of work. Instead, employers have added more than 2.5 million jobs in the first 11 months this year. And while polls suggest a lot of people are still grumpy about the economy, that may be starting to change. Uh, Joe Brusuelis is chief U.S. economist at RSM. He says wages are now going up faster than prices, so people are starting to see a real bump in their buying power. Where we're at now with the economy, this is what a soft landing looks like, and this is what full employment feels like. And that's why we're optimistic about the direction of the U.S. economy heading into 2024. Now, nobody thinks the Fed's going to declare victory over inflation this week. Interest rates are likely to stay high for a while to come. But policymakers will offer some guidance tomorrow about where they think rates might go next year. And Bruce Willis thinks by sometime around the middle of 2024, the Fed might be ready to start cutting interest rates. NPR's Scott Horsley, thanks as always. You're welcome. Why do songbirds sing so much? Well, a new study suggests they have to to stay in shape. Here's NPR's Ari Daniel. A few years ago, I was out at dawn in South Carolina low country, a mix of swamp and trees draped in Spanish moss. The sound of birdsong filled the air. It's the same in lots of places. Once the light of day switches on, songbirds launch their serenade. I mean, why birds sing is relatively well answered. Iris Adam is a behavioral neuroscientist at the University of Southern Denmark. For many songbirds, males sing to impress a female and uh, attract them as mate, and also birds sing to defend their territory. But Adam says these reasons don't explain why songbirds sing so darn much. There's an insane drive to sing. For some, it's hours every day. That's a lot of energy. Plus, singing can be dangerous. As soon as you sing, you reveal yourself, like where you are, that you even exist, where your territory is. All of that immediately is out in the open for predators, for everybody. Why take that risk? Adam wondered whether the answer might lie in the muscles that produce birdsong, and if those muscles require regular exercise. So she designed a series of experiments on zebra finches, little Australian songbirds with striped heads and a bloom of orange on their cheeks. One of Adam's first experiments involved taking males and severing the connection between their brains and their singing muscles already after two days, they had lost some of their performance. And after three weeks, they were back to the same level when they were juveniles and never had sung before. 
Next, she left the finches intact, but prevented them from singing for a week by keeping them in the dark almost around the clock. The first two, three days, it's quite easy, but the longer the experiment goes, the more they are like, I need to sing. <laughs> so then you need to tell them, like, stop, <laughs> you can't sing. After a week, the birds' singing muscles lost half their strength. But does that impact what the resulting song sounds like? Here's a male before the seven days of darkness. And here he is after. And I don't hear a difference. It doesn't matter, though, if we can hear the difference. It matters if the females can, because they're the ones the males are trying to impress. And six of the nine females preferred the song that came from a male who'd been using his singing muscles daily. Adam's conclusion? Songbirds need to exercise their vocal muscles to produce top performance song. If they don't sing, they lose performance, their vocalizations get less attractive to females, and that's bad. This may help explain songbirds' incessant singing, a kind of daily vocal calisthenics to keep their instruments in tip-top shape. The research appears in the journal Nature Communications. It's significant because not many groups are studying in such detail the muscles. Ana Amador is a neuroscientist at the University of Buenos Aires. She calls the study impressive. What they are highlighting is that uh, you need a lot of practice to achieve a mastery in what you're doing. And the findings may have something to say about human voices. Iris Adam again. If you apply the bird results to the humans, any time you stop speaking for whatever reason, you might experience a loss in vocal performance. Just take a singer who's recovering from a cold, or someone who's had vocal surgery and might need a little rehab. Adam says one day songbirds could help us improve how we train and restore our own voices too. Ari Daniel, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, while Israel and Hamas continue to fight in Gaza, for many Palestinians in the West Bank, Hamas's popularity is rising, and the war is making it harder to talk about coexistence with Israel. That story is coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, committed to developing deep relationships and building bridges among people and communities to advance social, economic, and racial justice throughout Massachusetts. The Lenny Fund.org. Stocks closed higher for fourth day. The Dow picked up nearly a half percent. S&P rose about the same to hit its highest level since January of last year, and the Nasdaq picked up seven-tenths of a percent. Cambridge-based Moderna Pharmaceuticals is restructuring and changing its executive team. The Boston Business Journal reports that the changeup includes the recent departure of the chief commercial officer. Moderna's CEO will fulfill those duties starting next year. It's unclear whether the restructuring will cost jobs below the executive level. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Square Holiday Fair, One Brattle Square. Local crafts for gift giving, December 15th to 17th and 21st to 23rd. HarvardSquareHolidayFair.com. And MathWorks. 
creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Some gusty winds are on tonight, temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow should be sunny once again, still breezy, about 42 tops. Thursday could be pretty much the same, lots of sunshine with high temperatures in the mid-30s. 41 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a vigorous public debate about illegal drug use and whether to allow supervised consumption or overdose prevention sites. Those are clinics where people using drugs are monitored to make sure they don't overdose and die. In private, some family members take it upon themselves. I want people to stay alive. That's Renee, whose story we began this morning. WBUR reporter Martha Biebinger begins part two with Renee in her kitchen. Renee was making supper late one afternoon when her daughter Brooke arrived, unexpectedly, clearly in withdrawal. Renee and Brooke had been through a lot. Renee's sole mission became keeping Brooke alive. In the kitchen, Renee watched Brooke pull a needle and drugs out of her bag. She kind of gathered up all of her stuff and started walking off towards the hallway bathroom. And immediately in my brain, I said, no. Because the bathroom Brooke headed for is small. If she got in that bathroom and shut the door and fell out, overdosed, there's no way I'd be able to get that door open with her leaning against it. So Renee did something she'd never done before. She asked Brooke to stay. She was so sick. She was going to use carelessly. It, It took no time at all for my mind to process that whole situation and say, Brooke, you you got to do this here, babe. Renee remembers turning to face the kitchen sink and give Brooke some privacy. She looked back when she heard soft sobs. She had stuck herself unsuccessfully so many times that she had blood running down the back of her hand and dripping off of her fingertips onto the floor. Renee, who has medical training, helped her daughter clean up and calm down. After the shot, Renee sat with Brooke until the danger of a fatal fentanyl overdose had passed. What has stayed with Brooke years later, when she's no longer injecting drugs, is the certainty in that moment that she was loved. And she didn't, you know, judge me for what I was doing. She just wanted me to be all right. It was weird, though. I ain't gonna lie, it was weird. Some parents would go way beyond weird and call what Renee did that day irresponsible or even criminal. Others are quietly doing something similar, an ear pressed against a bedroom or bathroom door, hoping they can intervene if needed before it's too late. Renee knows that what worked for her to keep Brooke alive won't be right for every family. I hope I give them permission to love their loved one the way they see fit. There's no blueprint for this. 
But for Renee, a blueprint did emerge that day in the kitchen, what might be called home-based overdose prevention. Renee stood watch with Brooke again, and then with some of Brooke's friends. These days, Renee monitors drug use occasionally for a dozen or so people she's met while passing out clean needles and Narcan, a brand of the overdose reversal drug which she keeps handy too. Got our Narcan here, you know, so if anything were to happen, we're ready. Today, Renee's backyard is a temporary overdose prevention or supervised consumption site. Her first guest is Christina, a mother of four. Where did that baggie go? Add a little bit in it. I just laid it right there. I'm not sorry, I got left. Right We're not using full names and have altered some voices because some of what the participants talk about could be illegal. Christina is anxious, shaky, and can't find a vein. Renee presses several spots on Christina's arm and locates one. The shot is done in seconds. But now I want her to sit here with me for a few minutes just to make sure she's... I'm starting to sweat. We can cut that fan on, make you some water. If Christina took a lethal dose of fentanyl, it will knock her out fast. At Renee's, Christina will not have to worry about being raped or robbed if she nods off. After five minutes or so, the two women stand hug, and Renee walks Christina to her ride. This is seriously all it takes to keep somebody alive. People die of overdoses because they're by themselves. Renee says she's reversed about 30 overdoses in the past few years, doing her part to tackle a grim fact. Most people found dead after an overdose were alone. In Renee's home, there are some rules. Do not show up unannounced, never leave drugs behind, and people have to take turns. I mean, I can't revive but one person at a time. I'm good, but I ain't that good. The American Medical Association and other leading healthcare groups have endorsed overdose prevention sites, but supporters in almost every state are afraid to open them under current drug laws. Some lawmakers, police, and prosecutors push to ban these sites, saying they increase violence and property crimes, although studies show this has not occurred at the two sites in the U.S. Opponents also argue that people with an addiction should be sent to treatment, not a place that enables drug use. Renee says people will use safe space or not. I enable them to leave of their own volition and not on an ambulance gurney or in a body bag. That's what I enable. Renee doesn't just enable people to survive their addiction. She also offers treatment. Sometimes that starts here, too, in her backyard. You can get your car and drive it behind the shed and pull it right back here. A, a working mom who Renee's known for years, arrives just to pick up clean needles and naloxone. A tells Renee she's trying to wean herself off fentanyl, only injecting once or twice a day, just enough to prevent full withdrawal. I used to not be sick. A wants to get on Suboxone, a drug that combines an opioid and naloxone to curb cravings and prevent an overdose. But her local treatment program told her she'd have to wait 72 hours between her last shot of fentanyl and starting Suboxone. A says she tried and decided she'd rather die. You just think we'll just get sick and get it over with. I, I don't know why. I don't know why it's so hard. Renee listens as A starts to cry. Then Renee describes another way to start Suboxone. It's called microdosing and is used at many medical centers. As soon as A can no longer tolerate the fentanyl withdrawal, she'll take a small dose of Suboxone and slowly transition to the new drug. Renee says she's done this for half a dozen people, even though she can't prescribe Suboxone. 
So people like me have to break the law. We have to risk everything to be able to help people like her. Sometime soon, Renee will find a way to get Suboxone. She wants to have it in hand when A calls or comes by because the window of opportunity between a last shot, the decision to start treatment, and gut-punching withdrawal might be just a few hours. All she's got to do now is look at me and say, I'm ready. That's the end of the conversation. A wipes her face as she weighs Renee's offer. She says she isn't ready yet, but is close. What matters to A in this moment is knowing that Renee will do whatever she can to help, whether A starts treatment or not. It does give me hope. You know, it gives me hope that she hasn't given up on me. I think if there was more of that, it, it's, I can't imagine how different things could be. Renee's work is helping make a difference for her daughter. Brooke says she's no longer addicted to opioids. If there's a line Renee is not willing to cross to continue keeping Brooke, Christina, and A alive, Renee says she hasn't found it yet. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Still to come on All Things Considered in Japan, the former female soldier's high-profile win in a sexual assault court case is seen as a victory for human rights and a setback for Japan's effort to beep up its military. That story still to come. Clear skies this evening and tonight. After a nice clear day, should fall to about freezing overnight tonight. Tomorrow's sunny again, breezy, up around the low 40s. Could have sunshine return for Thursday as well. The East leading Boston Celtics take to the garden floor tonight. The host, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Game time is 7.30. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Robin Young. When chef, author Clancy Miller first entered the food world, she knew very little about other black women who preceded her. Now in her For the Culture, she tells their stories. Lena Richard had a television show, a cooking show, more than a decade before Julia Child. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukraine's president made a third visit to Washington today to urge Congress to support more funding to help his military in the fight against Russia's invasion. But many Republican lawmakers have soured on providing additional aid to Ukraine, and some want it to be tied to more funding for U.S. border security. Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois says the U.S. must make good on its promise to keep helping Ukraine, or face the prospect of Russia succeeding in its effort to take control of its neighbor. For almost two years, they have fought off the most powerful military in the world and given their lives to do it, and we said we stand by your side. 
Zelensky told members of Congress that more U.S. aid would help his country win the war with Moscow. President Biden is asking Congress for $110 billion for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security needs, but the money is at serious risk of collapse as Congress prepares to break for the holidays. The woman at the center of a new lawsuit over Kentucky's near-total abortion ban has learned her embryo lost cardiac activity. The ACLU is representing her in court, as Morgan Watkins of Louisville Public Media reports. The plaintiff filed a class action lawsuit Friday using the pseudonym Jane Doe. Shortly afterward, the ACLU says she learned the embryo no longer had cardiac activity. It's unclear how the change in the condition of Jane Doe's pregnancy may affect the case. A spokesperson for the ACLU of Kentucky declined to provide further information. Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron previously advised the state's near-total abortion ban does not prohibit doctors from providing miscarriage management. Jane Doe's lawsuit is the first class action case of its kind since the state outlawed abortion last year. The ACLU says it still welcomes other pregnant Kentuckians seeking an abortion to join the class action lawsuit. For NPR News, I'm Morgan Watkins in Louisville. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council will vote tomorrow on whether to fund the new $82 million contract with the Boston Police Union. As WBUR's Simone Rios reports, some councilors have raised questions with the police and the mayor's office about the deal. The contract prevents officers accused of some serious crimes from being able to challenge their firing through arbitration. Outgoing Councillor Kendra Lara asked city negotiator Lou Mandarini why domestic assault and battery isn't among those crimes. The fact that something is not on, the, on this list does not mean we approve of it. Of course not, but it does mean that it's still up for arbitration. It does. Yeah. Yeah, the nature of collective bargaining is that you know, you negotiate an agreement with a labor organization and that at a certain point you have to conclude, you know, this is as good as we're going to do. The agreement allows some civilians to work police details. Mandarini said that was a sticking point in the negotiations, one reason why it took over a year and a half to reach a deal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Today is the first anniversary of the opening of the Green Line Extension's Medford branch, but it could be a happier anniversary. The line is closed for repairs at night through at least Sunday because the line's tracks are too narrow. On WBUR's Radio Boston Today, MBTA Advisory Board Executive Director Brian Kane said he sympathizes with riders' frustrations. Somerville is, has been upzoning and building around T-stations, which is everything we've asked cities and towns to do. They are ready to have regular service that just operates for the economic development advantages that it brings. So, you know, from my perspective and the mayors that I talk to, just get it done and just run the thing at this point. Kane says he has faith in the MBTA's new general manager, Phil Ang, to clear up other issues on the T, including slow zones. State officials are proposing updates to the reimbursement system for some child care centers in Massachusetts. The Boston Globe reports that the changes will address inequities for roughly 56 percent of providers that care for children who receive state subsidies. The state's Early Education Board is expected to vote on the proposed increases early next month. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Forty degrees now in Boston. Clear skies this evening and tonight after a nice clear day. Should fall to about freezing overnight tonight. Tomorrow should be sunny again, breezy up around the low 40s. Could have sunshine return for Thursday as well. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. From BritVox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritVox.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Israel says the war in Gaza will eliminate Hamas as a military threat. But two months after Hamas's deadly October 7th raid on Israel, the popularity of Hamas among Palestinians appears to be rising in the West Bank. Tired of decades of Israeli military control and lost hopes of statehood, even some moderate Palestinians say they view Hamas's attack as a legitimate act of defiance. And... They don't believe the evidence of Hamas atrocities. NPR's Brian Mann reports from Ramallah. The first day I arrive in Ramallah, there are marches and protests across the city, with many protesters identifying themselves as supporters of the Qassam Brigades. That's Hamas's military wing. It is just uh, a sea of flags, many of them the green flags of Hamas, people chanting here, praising Hamas. It's important to say there is overwhelming evidence Hamas fighters killed Israeli civilians, women and children in the October 7 attack that Israel says left 1,200 people dead. Video recorded by Hamas fighters shows attacks against civilians. But here in the West Bank, Palestinians see October 7th very differently as a legitimate act of resistance and defiance of Israel's occupation. Nihad Abugash is a journalist and political analyst in Ramallah who describes himself as a secular moderate. Hamas made the most important action against Israel since its existence. It made something like a miracle. Of course, we don't believe all the lies. This argument, this conspiracy theory, is embraced even by many educated Palestinians with strong connections to the West. Shopkeepers, government workers, farmers and students, they tell me again and again Hamas's attack on Israel was a military strike by devout Muslims against Israeli police and soldiers. They say Hamas fighters would never rape women or murder children. Fadi Karan is a Palestinian activist in the West Bank with a progressive group called Avaz, who's not a Hamas supporter. He says he's personally troubled by accounts of attacks on civilians. The Palestinians do not support the harming of innocents. But Quran says after decades of mistrust, many Palestinians simply don't believe Israeli and Western accounts of what happened. So from the first day, there was a question on Palestinians' mind is, is this all true? What people are left with, Quran says, what many Palestinians have embraced, is the image of Hamas as a symbol of strength. This idea that Gaza, after 17 years of blockade, was capable of like challenging the blockade, challenging the military occupation, was seen as an inspiring act of resistance. There's another reason Hamas's brand has soared in the West Bank. After October 7, Israel agreed to release a couple hundred Palestinian prisoners in exchange for Israeli hostages taken by Hamas. <laughs> It's dusk in Ramallah when I arrive at the hilltop home of Hanan Barghouti. Barghouti was arrested by Israel for Hamas-related activity and released during the hostage-for-prisoner exchange. Of 
Barghouti says she believes if it weren't for pressure exerted on Israel by Hamas, she would never have come home. Barghouti says the rise of support for Hamas in the West Bank is heartening, a sign, she says, the organization is moving in the right direction. She tells me Hamas has gained popularity not only here but internationally. I ask Barghouti if it's possible for some kind of peace between Palestinians and Israelis, and she shakes her head, no. And many people here agree. They tell me the time for negotiation and coexistence with Israel has ended. Nihad Abugash, the journalist, says the less confrontational Palestinian Authority, the official government here in the West Bank, has seen its popular support crumble in part because of what he describes as collaboration with Israeli security officials. The bad performance of the authority here, this gives power to Hamas. After October 7, Israeli officials say the only way their country can be safe is to eliminate Hamas, and that requires the ongoing offensive in Gaza. But for Palestinians here, the focus now is on the humanitarian crisis caused by the war. Thousands of people in Gaza have been killed, including many women and children. The nonstop violence is really radicalizing all Palestinian society. Activist Fadi Karan, who himself advocates nonviolence, says the war is making it harder for Palestinians to talk about coexistence. Honestly, basically, that people do not feel safe around anyone that even professes support for Israel. You know, the truth is, we as Palestinians now see anyone that says, I stand with Israel, as someone calling for the genocide of our people and the slaughter of our children. As the war grinds on, people I talk to here say this is the political and cultural space Hamas is filling for many Palestinians. Brian Mann, NPR News, Ramallah. In Japan, a female former soldier won a high-profile court case that shone a rare light on cases of sexual assault in the country's military. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports that the verdict is seen as both a victory for human rights and a setback for Japan's efforts to beef up its military. And a note, this story includes details of sexual assault. The Fukushima District Court found three ex-soldiers guilty of forced indecency against fellow soldier Rina Gonoi. The court sentenced them to two-year jail terms but suspended the sentence, meaning they won't serve time unless they violate their probation. Plaintiff Rina Gonoi, 24, said outside the courthouse that the verdict is good for Japanese society. I think there are many people who can't raise their voices and fight back. And now that we have this precedent, I hope that more people will raise their voices and say that doing bad things is bad. Gonoi said that during a 2021 exercise, the three soldiers pinned her down, spread her legs, and rubbed their crotches against her. Gonoi reported the case to her superiors, but they dismissed it, claiming insufficient evidence. The defendants maintained their innocence, claiming what they did was just for laughs. Gonoi left the army and went public with her story in a YouTube video last year. Japan's defense ministry publicly apologized and launched an investigation. It uncovered more than 1,400 complaints from both men and women of sexual harassment and bullying in the military. Gonoi says she feels vindicated by the court. I 
I think today we showed that this is a serious crime that cannot be tolerated just for the sake of getting laughs. I hope the defendants will seriously face up to their actions. Online, meanwhile, people accused Konoe of lying or trying to make money. Jeffrey Hall, an expert on Japanese politics at Kandai University of International Studies near Tokyo, says that in many Japanese institutions, whistleblowers are seen as troublemakers. There's a lot of skepticism towards claims that will break the harmony of an organization or bring reputational damage to an organization. He adds that the extensive abuse that Ganoe's suit exposed is not a good advertisement for careers in Japan's military. It's a big problem for them and their their goal of expanding their defense capabilities as their population shrinks. Japan's military missed its recruitment target for fiscal year 2022 by more than half. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In California, a new law signed by Governor Gavin Newsom will make it easier for low-income teens to get mental health care without their parents' permission. But some parents whose families won't be affected by the policy are protesting it, saying it infringes on their rights. KQED's April Domboski reports. When she was in ninth grade, Fiona Liu fell into a depression. She was having trouble adjusting to her new high school in Orange County and was just exhausted. In my life, I just felt super isolated and I really couldn't go to school every day. I used to like just cry in the mornings. Fiona wanted to get help, but she needed a parent's permission first, and she didn't feel like she could talk to her mom about it. I can only testify to Chinese culture, but it's very much like... If you busy yourself more, then you won't have time to think about mental health issues and then it'll just go away. Plus, her mom's a single parent working long hours to care for her, her younger brother and her grandmother. Fiona just didn't want to add to her burden. I wouldn't want her to have to, you know, sign all these forms and like go to therapy with me. It's not like we're antagonizing our parents. It's just we really care for them and we feel like if we can do something by ourselves, then like, why not just do it by ourselves? You know, it's like one less thing for them to worry about. This is why Fiona campaigned for the new law to allow low-income teens to get mental health counseling without having to get their parents' consent. She faced a lot of objections, though, from other people's parents. If my child is dealing with a mental health crisis, I want to know about it. James Gallagher is one of several Republicans in the state legislature who voted against the bill. This misguided and I think wrongful trend in our policy now that has continued to exclude parents from that equation and say they don't need to be informed is wrong. You have to hear this. California parents horrified. A Bay Area mom and attorney, Erin Friday, went on Fox News last spring to speak out against the bill. To her, this is about who influences the care of transgender youth. These are counselors who are indoctrinators and they get to decide where your child goes. It's just a terrifying bill. The thing is, parents like Friday and Gallagher, parents who have private insurance, their kids already have the right to get mental health care without their permission. That's been law in California for 13 years. All this new law does is extend that right to low-income kids covered by Medicaid. In California, it's called Medi-Cal. In a hearing about the bill, Democratic lawmakers Wendy Carrillo, Akila Weber, and Blanca Rubio made it clear what they think this is about. This is about 
equity. This is an equity thing because this is only an equity issue. This is for Medi-Cal. Assemblywoman Carrillo is the law's author. She sees this as a common-sense update to the previous law. It passed in 2010 and was signed by Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. It had no opposition. But this time around, Carrillo's office got death threats. The extremes on both sides have gotten so extreme that we have a hard time actually talking about the need for mental health. To Fiona Liu and other low-income youth, it feels like the mostly white, mostly middle-class opponents are hijacking their narrative. It's a little inauthentic that they were advocating for a policy that won't directly affect them. The law will take effect next summer, but opponents say they plan to file a lawsuit to stop it. For NPR News, I'm April Domboski in San Francisco. This story comes from NPR's partnership with KQED and KFF Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered, Claudine Gay will keep her job as president of Harvard University, according to a statement from the Harvard Corporation. The corporation says Gay is the right leader to help Harvard community heal. Follow this developing story today here at 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com And Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. GoodNewsGarage.org Sky should remain clear tonight, down around freezing. Tomorrow and Thursday should bring more sunshine. Windy tomorrow in the low 40s again. Thursday should stick to the 30s. 40 degrees now in Boston. The East-leading Boston Celtics take to the garden floor tonight. They'll host the Cleveland Cavaliers. Tip-off is set for 7.30. This is WBUR. It's 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism is essential across our community and in your own daily life. Listener support keeps WBUR going. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We want to introduce you now to a baker in Pittsburgh who uses cookies to honor the stories of unsung Asian American heroes. Here's NPR's Lakshmi Singh. Jasmine Cho is about to try something she has never dared try before. She's going to take a bite of her own cookie. Wait, no pressure. (laughs) Ah, this is pressure, you're right. I've never bitten into a face cookie before. Cho's reservations are understandable given the hours, sometimes days, she spends on her custom-made creations. Underneath every layer of icing is a remarkable story of a warrior who's confronted 
discrimination, and injustice at great personal cost. Each inspiration is plucked from the pages of history books or present-day postings on social media. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to bite any further. <laughs> on this day, the founder of the online bakery Yummy Holic is struggling to show me the ropes around this commercial kitchen in Pittsburgh. This place is filled with the intoxicating aroma of vanilla, sugar, and butter. Lots and lots of butter. Cho remains fixed, though, on a photo of a young woman with a bashful smile and gets to work. So I'm mixing a little bit of color right now, a little bit of green. She presses the tip uh, of a slender brush into a palette of food coloring and icing, then applies the sweet ingredients and gentle strokes across a four-inch canvas of baked dough. All right, I'm just gonna go for it and just start maybe with her eyebrows here. Within minutes, the familiar contours of eyes, a dimple, and a smile emerge and bear an uncanny resemblance to her subject's photo. She's taken a cookie and finally turned it into a work of art. And then she starts the process all over again, dozens of times over. To think these delectable delights started out as birthday party favors but became an online sensation. It just went completely viral. There was so much attention being funneled toward it. And so that was really my aha moment of, wow, everyone's paying attention to something I've created. What do I want them to pay attention to? In 2019, Cho made it to the stage of a TEDx talk in Pittsburgh, where she shared her idea. She wanted to shine a light on Asians and Asian Americans who, she says, have been left out of school curriculums. Privilege is when your history is taught as core curriculum while mine is taught as an elective. Growing up as an Asian American, I felt like I had to accept being invisible in the only country I knew to call home. The joyful baker says she leaned into her mission for social justice. She baked batches of tributes to figures who embody resilience and are widely celebrated as protectors of revered traditions. Each cookie portrait capturing every minute detail, like her striking portrayal of the iconic Filipina indigenous tattoo artist, Apo Wang Od. She's 106 years old and I am piping on every single you know, fold in her skin, every wrinkle. And I think those are physical traits that each tell a story. In 2020, Jasmine Cho scored major commissions to showcase cookie portraits of unsung Asian American heroes, including work for the Comedy Central sitcom, Aquafina is Nora from Queens. There were workshops, a docu-series, a census project for Pittsburgh, and of course, a lot more orders. Then 2021 arrived. That was actually a far more difficult year for me. Uh, that to me was at the height of anti-Asian violence. Reported crimes targeting Asian American communities soared in the United States since the coronavirus was first reported in China more than a year earlier. Headlines of horrific attacks kept coming. Police arresting this man after surveillance video caught him repeatedly kicking a 65-year-old woman 
who was on her way to church. She ran over, grabbed me by the hair, threw me on the ground, and it's like started punching me several times. This surveillance footage shows a 71-year-old Asian grandmother violently shoved to the ground, her purse stolen. Cho says she remembers feeling rage, fear for her own family, and painfully disconnected during the pandemic, especially when a beloved aunt suddenly passed away after surgery. The only way Cho could grieve at her aunt's funeral was from the other side of a Zoom camera. Depression took hold, and Cho pulled back from virtually everything she held dear, including baking. The social justice activist who'd made it her life's mission to bring joy and understanding to the world was now struggling to understand the world she lived in. But over time, Cho seemed to discover something profound about herself. She realized that the vulnerability she had been feeling had actually been her strength all along. I really do hold to the importance of remaining tender. Um, you know, you talk about how a good baked good has a tender crumb. You know, to me, tenderness, that softness is about making sure that you don't numb yourselves to the experience of life. And life includes pain, but also joy. <laughs> <laughs> Jasmine Cho says she found her joy again for personal connection, for baking, and for indulging a rookie who thinks her misshapen cookie's ready for prime time. I nailed it. <laughs> no, yeah, you did. <laughs> I was looking at like mine. Like that show, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. How fun. This was fun for me. <laughs> And that story is part of Lakshmi's new series called The Sunshine Project, available now on the new NPR app. Juana, please don't take this the wrong way, but this next story might be bad news for cat owners like yourself. Go on. Well, we all know cats have murderous tendencies. You know, they like to drag little birds and mice to the doorstep. Mine has never done that. He is strictly indoor. Okay, we won't blame Toro. But scientists reviewed more than a century of scientific evidence. And they report today that free-ranging cats consume 2,084 different species, including birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and insects. There's even evidence they have eaten things as big as cows, although they're probably just scavenging those. They do not sound like picky eaters. Definitely not. And a sixth of the species identified here are of conservation concern, like a rare Hawaiian seabird, baby green sea turtles, little brown bats. Although cats also dine on cockroaches and rats, so that feels like a win. I mean, protein is protein, Ari. So is the recommendation just to keep your cat inside? Well, as a journalist, I don't make recommendations. And as a dog owner, I would never tell cat owners what to do. But yes, the lead authors on this paper keep their own cats inside. And they point out that indoor cats tend to be healthier and live longer too. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. 
More at edutopia.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Temperatures on the way down, 39 degrees now. Sky should be clear tonight, a nice night down around freezing, windy still. Tomorrow and Thursday should bring more sunshine, windy tomorrow. Temperatures in the low 40s again should stick to the 30s on Thursday. Again, 39 in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.59. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Harvard University President Claudine Gay will stay in her job even after calls for her removal. She's by no means out of the woods. She has to demonstrate that she has learned some important lessons. Gay faced scrutiny after her comments at a congressional hearing about the rise of anti-Semitism on campus. What comes next? Coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Israel's military offensive against Hamas is now focused on Gaza's second largest city, Han Yunus. The hospital there was overwhelmed with newly wounded people, but many doctors have fled. And the British House of Commons has voted to keep one of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's signature policies alive, a plan to deport undocumented migrants to Rwanda, regardless of where they came from. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky is back on Capitol Hill today, where he again appealed for U.S. help in his country's war against Russia. The visit comes as a $110 billion aid package for Ukraine. Israel and other security needs appears imperiled, something Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called a bad look. Do Republicans not realize how thrilled Putin must be right now seeing the gridlock? Russian state TV is even running segments on how great it is for Russia that Congress can't pass Ukraine funding. Think about that. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, for his part, said he's prepared to address the issues, but on his timetable. My support for Ukraine and Israel is rock solid. I'm committed to preparing the U.S. military to deter and defend against Chinese aggression. I'm determined to get the national security crisis at the southern border under control. And I'm going to work to get it done as long as it takes. Zelensky is also meeting with President Joe Biden at the White House. The Biden administration, meanwhile, has released new estimates on the huge losses suffered by Russian forces in a recent military offensive in Ukraine. More from NPR's Greg Myrie. According to U.S. estimates, the Russian military has suffered a staggering 13,000 dead and wounded over the past two months in an attempt to capture the town of Avdivka in eastern Ukraine. The Russians have also lost more than 200 combat vehicles. But a 
been unable to drive Ukrainian forces from the town. This Russian offensive, and earlier ones, have attempted to overwhelm Ukraine's smaller military. So far, Ukraine's forces have held their ground. Meanwhile, President Zelensky is telling Congress and the White House that his country needs a new infusion of U.S. military assistance, which is running low. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Oil companies are under pressure to invest more money into renewable energy. At this year's U.N. climate talks, the world set a goal of tripling renewable energy and oil money could help. But NPR's Camila Dominoski reports one big hurdle is that oil makes a lot more money right now. Consider these numbers. On an oil and gas project, companies can expect to make 20 to 50 percent returns, at least when crude prices are high. On renewable projects... 10 percent or less. Rebecca Fitz of Boston Consulting Group says those lower returns appeal to some companies because they're steady. It's low risk, low reward. But nevertheless, you can build a good business out of a low risk, low reward business model. But oil companies are all about high risk, high reward. And that helps explain this number. Right now, green energy makes up just 2.5 percent of oil companies' investments. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 173 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard President Claudine Gay will stay on as the school's leader after she got a unanimous vote of approval from the university's corporation. Harvard's most prominent alumni group unanimously backed Gay as well. This follows days of intense criticism for Gay's congressional testimony last week about anti-Semitism on campus. First-year Harvard Law student Parth Kotek felt questions by lawmakers were disingenuous. I think the job of a university president is really hard. There's a lot of competing people to, to try and please at any given point in time, and I think it's really unfair to sort of make them make them act in, in like a political sphere, I guess. In a statement released today, the Harvard Corporation said Gay is the right leader to help the community heal. WBR's Emily Piper Valillo was on the Harvard campus earlier today. She reports things were calm and security was heavy. There's a really decent police presence on campus. I've seen, I don't know, at least like two or three police cars. There's two police cars in my sight right now. And I've definitely seen a lot more um, policemen on campus than I'm used to. But otherwise, it's pretty quiet. Most students are uh, just running back and forth to their finals. That's WBR's Emily Piper Valillo reporting from Cambridge. Massachusetts senators are demanding that the federal government require airlines to carry EpiPens on commercial flights. Those are devices used to inject epinephrine into people who are having a severe allergic reaction. CNN reports that Ed Markey, Elizabeth Warren, and Chuck Schumer of New York sent a letter to the Federal Aviation Administration advocating for the change. Improv Boston in Cambridge is closing its doors at the end of the month. The organization has offered performances, improv classes, and tours for the past 40 years. Its managing director, Matt Laidlaw, says it's a big loss to the Boston community. You're losing the opportunity for people to find their voice and have this space where they can explore and understand that improv is not just about getting up and trying to make people laugh. It's finding the confidence to be able to speak publicly, make friends, finding a space where you're welcomed. Laidlaw says the pandemic cost Improv Boston its theater in Inman Square. Since then, he says the lack of a consistent theater space has squeezed finances. Some gusty winds around tonight, temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow should be sunny once again, breezy again. Temperatures about 42 degrees tops. 39 now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners. 
And by Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Harvard University President Claudine Gay will keep her job. The unanimous decision to have her stay on was announced today by Harvard's board. This came after calls for Gay's removal following her comments at a congressional hearing about the rise of anti-Semitism on campus. Gay and the presidents of two other universities came under intense scrutiny following that hearing. When asked if calling for the genocide of Jews would violate Harvard's code of conduct, Gay wouldn't give a yes or no answer. Harvard Constitutional Law Scholar Lawrence Tribe called her testimony hesitant, formulaic, and evasive. But he was among hundreds of faculty members who rallied behind Gay, urging Harvard to keep its president. When I spoke with him earlier today, he gave me his reaction to this news. I was pleased to see that she will remain president. I think it would have been a real mistake for the university to cave to the particular pressures placed upon it from external sources. Uh, And I'm glad that she will be retained. So she keeps her job. But I mean, what type of position does this put Claudine Gay in now? Do you think she's out of the woods? Well, I don't think she's out of the woods by any means. I think the only way through this forest is through the trees. And she's got to plant plenty of trees. It's clear that Harvard has not done as good a job as it should have in having a clear policy that would have made it obvious to anyone that for students to call for the killing of fellow students, the killing of Jews, of Muslims, the killing of blacks, is not even close to the line. Obviously and clearly unacceptable. It should have been very easy for all of the university presidents to answer that question. It was softball, not a gotcha. And I was very disappointed, I must say, not just by the president of Harvard, but by the presidents of Penn and MIT. They all relied on obviously terrible legal advice, suggesting that they should answer in a kind of hyper-technical way that kept all of their options open. That was a mistake. Let's talk about the politics here. Much of the intense national backlash stemming from this hearing was related to questions that came from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York. She's a member of Republican leadership in the House. And since the hearing, Liz McGill, who's the president of the University of Pennsylvania, was forced to resign. Congresswoman Stefanik wrote on social media, one down, two to go, in reference to the other university leaders who testified, Gay and the president of MIT. I want to ask you... Does it worry you that politicians are attempting to influence higher education for political gain? It worries me greatly. One down, two to go makes it sound like she's playing the hunger games. She's on the hunt for people who don't follow her particular right-wing political agenda, the MAGA agenda. When you have a former president who says he would terminate the Constitution, and when you have people who are his supporters, his enablers, people who either helped him almost conduct a successful coup and remain in power. When you have those people chortling at their success in forcing one university president out of office and looking forward to forcing others out, we have a dangerous environment that as we come close to the 2024 election, where it is really possible that a dictator wannabe will assume power, That's the time when we must be particularly vigilant not to let the Stefanics of the world carry the day. 
I just want to step back a bit here because, I mean, Harvard and colleges and universities across the country have been reckoning with issues surrounding race, inequity, and free speech for years. And just last month, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government reported that a majority of its students did not feel comfortable expressing their, quote, genuine views on controversial topics. Lawrence Tribe, what does this current moment tell us about what kind of free speech is and isn't permissible on Harvard's campus in particular? Well, it's clear to me that Harvard needs to do a better job drawing a distinction between expressing views, however controversial, and harassing other students, whether targeting individuals or naming whole groups, whether the group be Palestinians or Jews, whether they be gay or straight, black or white, or any other group making those people feel unwelcome and uncomfortable. It's clear that much more needs to be done in the structure of the campus space, safe spaces where people know they can express views, however controversial, as long as they don't call for the actual physical harming of others. I've heard from students that there is a chill in the air in general, that people are afraid to speak their mind because they think they might be ostracized or might cross a line. Uh, I don't think Harvard or any institution that I know has done as good a job as, as all of us should in avoiding that chill and encouraging dialogue. And the whole society hasn't done as good a job as, as we should, really from the earliest phases of education in instilling those values. So we've got a lot of work to do, not only in universities, but throughout education and throughout society. That was Lawrence Tribe. He's a constitutional law scholar and professor at Harvard University. Thank you. Thank you. We have a dispatch now from near the front lines of Israel's latest military offensive in Gaza. It's in Khan Yunus, where Israeli troops are in combat with Hamas, trying to crush the militant group and find its leaders who planned the October 7th attack on Israel. NPR producer Anas Baba went there yesterday. He and NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv have this report. Anas Baba got a ride into Khan Yunus in a vintage pickup truck, the only kind of car that can run on vegetable oil, with gasoline in short supply. I'm heading now using a Peugeot truck 504, made in 1973. At the moment, we entered the entrance of Khan Yunus city. It looks like a ghost city. He saw residents fleeing. The only thing that you can see is maybe every five to ten minutes, a car that's holding all of the belongings from the mattresses, blankets, water, and canned food, and stuck in at least 15 person inside of a sedan, or maybe a donkey cart with the same image. He arrived in Khan Yunis as a nearby explosion caked him in dust. He arrived at a pile of rubble where a multi-story building used to stand. Crews there said the residents had already evacuated, but there had been two people inside, now presumed to be buried under the rubble. With Israel battling militants, residents have poured into places like universities and the Nasser Medical Complex. I'm sitting at the moment inside Nasser Hospital. Hundreds of families, mostly they are women, sheltering every each corner of the hall. Even the parking lot, every single inch in Nasser Hospital is occupied with displaced people. Like a metro station in one of the busiest countries in the world. Um Hussam is one of those women that's just like sheltering inside of the hole. 
She's trying to make one of these small babies go to sleep. She's sitting on a mattress. Her daughter is sleeping next to her. She says the kids cry. They don't understand war or anything. You can be patient, but the kids can't. She's been sheltering here inside the hospital for weeks. She said in Ukraine, when a child or woman was killed, the whole world stood up for them. Here, women and children, their blood is spilled and bodies are dismembered in the streets. But no one answers our pleas. Where are the Arab countries? This is a historic disgrace. Gaza health officials say more than 18,000 Palestinians have been killed, mostly women and children. That number does not distinguish between combatants and civilians. The hospital's mosque loudspeaker called out to those sheltering there to donate blood. They're overwhelmed with patients. Many were bussed in from northern Gaza after heavy fighting there in the first weeks of Israel's ground invasion. Now Israel has expanded its offensive to Khan Yunus, and the hospital finds itself near the front lines of the heaviest fighting, receiving even more patients. Dr. Samir Mansour is the head nurse of the intensive care unit. You can imagine, we have 300 beds and 1,200 victims here in Nasser Hospital. 1,200 patients, many of whom are on mattresses on the floor, with supplies running low. No syringes, no needles, no abdominal gauze, no, no medication, no narcotic medication, medication for sedation. Nasser Hospital had been a hub for Palestinian journalists reporting on the war. It had internet, water, electricity, a safe place to file stories after covering a bombing. But now most journalists have evacuated. This evacuation because the fear of uh, recurrency of a Shifa hospital scenario. I think this is the main point for them, the fear. A Shifa hospital, Gaza City's main hospital, was occupied by Israeli troops several weeks ago. The military says it found weapons there and tunnels under the hospital complex. Now the United Nations says Israeli troops have zeroed in on another hospital in northern Gaza. What about the situation about you, yourself? Are you going to stay here if something happened to Nasser, like the Israeli troops are all around the hospital? I'm here in the ICU with those patients living, lying on beds with mechanical ventilator support. I can't leave because they will die. Anas says before he left the city, there was gunfire, and he saw a woman had fallen in the street about 50 yards outside the hospital. The hospital staff rushed her inside. She was declared dead. No one knew her name. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv, with Anas Baba in Khan Yunus. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, U.S. support for Ukraine's war against Russia is fast eroding. Ukraine's president went to Washington today to push for more U.S. weapons and aid. That story is still to come. 
WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Stocks closed higher for a fourth day today. The Dow picked up nearly a half percent. S&P rose about the same to hit its highest level since January of last year, and the Nasdaq picked up seven tenths of a percent. It'll cost you more, or it'll rather cost you less to fill up the gas tank. The average price in the state is five cents less than it was last week. It's three dollars thirty-one cents per gallon. That's a fifteen cent drop from a month ago. The dip is thanks to lower oil prices. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Got some gusty winds around tonight, temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow should be sunny once again, still breezy, about 42 degrees tops. Thursday should be pretty much the same, lots of sunshine with highs in the mid-30s. The Boston Celtics take to the garden floor tonight to host the Cleveland Cavaliers. Tip-off is set for 7.30 tonight. Bruins are off until tomorrow night when they take on the Devils in New Jersey. It's 5.20. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak won a temporary victory in the UK Parliament tonight. He fought off a rebellion from members of his own Conservative Party and won their support for his plan to deport undocumented migrants to Rwanda. Tonight, that plan passed a key hurdle, but it is nowhere close to a done deal. NPR's Lauren Freyer has been following this story from our bureau in London, and she joins us now. Hey, Lauren. Hi there. So, Lauren, tell us what happened tonight. Well, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak survived what is the biggest challenge probably to his leadership so far. And it came from within his own conservative party. Hardliners threatened to vote against one of his signature policies, a plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda in Central Africa. Okay, and how exactly would that work? So Sunak basically wants to outsource the UK asylum system to Rwanda. So Syrians, Afghans, other asylum seekers who land in England crossing the English Channel by boat without visas would be flown to Central Africa to be processed and resettled there. Now, this is something that's been criticized by human rights groups. It's been struck down by the courts. Sunak revised the policy to try to get around that. Hardliners then accused him of watering it down too much, and it all came to a vote in Parliament tonight. Okay, and how did that go? You know, the volume of the voice vote tells you something about how emotional this issue is and how contentious it's been. Here's what it sounded like. As many as are of that opinion say aye. Aye! The contrary, no. No! 
The eyes did win it, 313 to 269. That means this Rwanda plan stays alive for now, but nobody is getting deported anytime soon. This still faces amendments, more votes, and possibly more legal challenges as well. And Lauren, as you know, immigration is also an emotional issue here in the U.S. Do British people support the idea of sending immigrants off to Rwanda rather than resettling them there? So many Britons saw the Brexit vote, the exit from the European Union, as a vote to stop the free flow of Europeans into Britain. But they also realized that parts of the UK economy rely on foreign labor, the National Health Service, for example. I talked to Kelly Beaver. She's the UK head of the polling company Ipsos. And she says, you know, while new Britons have nuanced views on immigration, the latest Ipsos poll shows only 10 percent of them believe that Sunak's government is doing a good job on immigration. It's a highly emotive topic. It certainly doesn't help if they perceive you as a divided party. It's not going to help the Conservative Party close the gap that they're seeing in the polls. Sunak is trailing in the polls ahead of an election next year. And by the way, a similar crisis has actually been playing out in France, just south of here. Yesterday, the French government's signature immigration bill was defeated. And Lauren, on this proposal with Rwanda, what what happens next here? I mean, there will be amendments to the legislation that was approved today. Those will have to get voted on. Then the upper house of parliament will have to vote probably in January. There could be more court challenges. I mean, Sunak wrote into this legislation declaring that Rwanda is a safe country for migrants who may be who may be fleeing persecution elsewhere. It's not at all clear that courts will agree with that. Sunak has said he's willing to pull out of human rights treaties if that's what it takes to push this through. He is staking his re-election campaign on this. He is trailing in the polls. And he may be voted out of office before he's ever able to make this a law. NPR's Lauren Freyer in London. Lauren, thank you. Thank you. The science is clear. The world must urgently phase out fossil fuels to avoid the worst effects of global warming. And for the first time, those two words, fossil fuels, actually appear in the draft agreement that global negotiators are haggling over at the COP28 talks in Dubai. The part that's missing is the urgency. The draft doesn't say anything about the need to reduce dependence on fossil fuels. Even though if humanity burns all the fossil fuels that are currently being extracted, it will be impossible to keep global temperatures from increasing more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Above 1.5 degrees, the world will experience runaway sea level rise, mass extinctions, and other catastrophic effects of climate change. Rachel Cletus of the Union of Concerned Scientists is following all of this at the meeting and joins us from Dubai. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ari. These negotiations move fast in these final hours, and the language may change. But as we are recording this on Tuesday afternoon, Washington, D.C. time, the text of this agreement never mentions phasing out fossil fuels. And so how meaningful is it that the text references fossil fuels for the first time at all? Well, Ari, we're into overtime at this COP, and the last text that we saw yesterday is certainly very disappointing. It's not the fossil fuel phase-out, the equitable and fair fossil fuel phase-out that we have come here to secure. So uh, we're not done yet, though. This is still uh, continuing, and we hope by the time we get out of here, we will get the kind of agreement that will finally put the world on track to transitioning away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Is it realistic to expect that dramatic of a change, though? 
Well, let's say when the text came out yesterday, there was almost universal uh, disdain about the text. Uh, it is not aligned with science. Uh, there isn't the kind of climate finance that's necessary for low-income countries to transition away from fossil fuels. So it's clearly inadequate. And all parties, many, many parties yesterday uh, were out complaining. The small island states, the Europeans, even the United States uh, saying the text was inadequate. So uh, we hope that everyone has been working really hard uh, this last day and that we will get a better text from the presidency either late tonight or early tomorrow. With so many parties describing the text as inadequate, I wonder why you think that's the language that came out. I mean, we've reported that the United Arab Emirates is one of the world's biggest oil and gas producers and a record number of fossil fuel employees and lobbyists attended this summit. In your view, did that shape the text of this agreement? Well, the clear obstructionist here is Saudi Arabia and uh, the OPEC countries, which have clearly publicly said that they will not accept any kind of fossil fuel phase out or phase down. That resistance needs to be eroded and overcome. Uh, we're really looking for world leaders uh, from Europe, from the United States, from all parts of the world to stand up for what's right, for safeguarding a livable future for this planet and people. There are fossil fuels, no doubt, right now. There are many companies, many states that are raking in enormous profits from fossil fuels, and they're making a last-ditch stand here. I will say the United States right now is in the regrettable position of being one of the top producers of fossil gas and uh, oil, which puts our nation at odds with climate goals. Does this meeting leave you with any hope that the goal of keeping global temperature increases below 1.5 degrees Celsius is still achievable? Well, we are far off track right now, and that's for sure from all the signs that we're seeing from the IPCC, from the UN. The global emissions trajectory is far off track from where it needs to be. So we need urgent action now. Uh, and this COP is the moment it has to start. The era of fossil fuels has to come to an end starting now. Rachel Cletus is the policy director for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, speaking with us from the COP28 conference in Dubai. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ari. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, continuing our coverage of climate change. In about 10 minutes, the Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else on Earth, and changes there directly influence the climate of the rest of the planet. That story is still to come. Also ahead, the forecast and a preview now. Some gusty winds around tonight, temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow should be sunny again, still breezy, about 42 degrees tops. Thursday could be pretty much the same thing, lots of sunshine, high temperatures in the mid-30s. The Boston Celtics take to the garden floor tonight. They'll be hosting the Cleveland Cavaliers. Tip-off is set for 7.30 tonight. Boston Bruins are off until tomorrow night when they take on the... Devils in New Jersey. This is WBUR, a nice evening out there. 39 degrees. The time is 5.30. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. 
I'm Robin Young. When chef, author Clancy Miller first entered the food world, she knew very little about other black women who preceded her. Now in her For the Culture, she tells their stories. Lena Richard had a television show, a cooking show, more than a decade before Julia Child. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. New York's top court has ordered the state to redraw its 26 congressional districts before next year's elections. As John Campbell of member station w, uh, WNYC tells us, it's a major win for Democrats. The ruling by the New York Court of Appeals clears the way for the state's Democrat-dominated legislature to have final say over a new congressional map. And it's likely to be more favorable to Democratic candidates. It comes after Republicans won a new map in North Carolina earlier this year. The GOP picked up three seats in New York last year after the court stepped in to draw the state's districts. It helped the party take a narrow House majority. Now, newly drawn districts could help Democrats win those seats back. For NPR News, I'm John Campbell in Albany. University researchers in Georgia say the U.S. is heading towards an economic slowdown next year as worries of a possible recession continue to loom. From member station WABE, Marlon Hyde has more. Experts at the University of Georgia expect job growth to weaken in early 2024, as the national economy may take a downturn but not fall into a full-on recession. Despite slower GDP growth, forecasters expect the labor market to remain strong enough to stave off an actual recession. Jeff Humphreys is a director of economic forecasting at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. We're not expecting a recession. But the risk is higher than normal. A normal recession risk would be like 15 or 20 percent. He says nationally, the chances of slipping into recession are closer to 50 percent. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hyde in Atlanta. Well, stocks finished higher on Wall Street one day after hitting a 20-month high. Inflation fell slightly last month, offset by a steep drop in the price of gasoline. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard President Claudine Gay will keep her job after she got the unanimous support of the university's governing board. Since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel, Gay has been subject to criticism over her response to pro-Palestinian protests. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, hundreds of the president's defenders are relieved by today's vote in her favor. The Harvard Corporation acknowledged that Gay has apologized for failing to condemn allegedly violent rhetoric during her appearance before a congressional committee last week. They also said Gay is, quote, the right leader to help our community heal. That was good news for Amir Moharib, who teaches at Harvard Medical School, even though he thinks that Gay has misrepresented pro-Palestinian rhetoric as hateful. These are nakedly political attacks, and I would be standing next to any university president who was attacked on the basis of their speech, even if I disagreed with that speech. This week, more than 700 members of Harvard's faculty signed a petition supporting Gay. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The Healy administration is pushing new investment in artificial intelligence, green technology, and robotics. Those are some of the sectors at the heart of the governor's new economic development plan. She signed the document today. Economic Development Secretary Yvonne House says the plan also focuses on housing and infrastructure. And especially in places like gateway cities and in rural communities. And to work on things like broadband and cell service and big complicated projects that we can work on together. 
The document will help guide the state's budgeting priorities. Specific spending plans will require support from state lawmakers. And the Boston Public Health Commission is issuing a warning about recent sewage discharges in the city caused by this week's storms. The warning affects the waters near parts of East Boston, Charlestown, the Fort Point Channel, and the downtown waterfront area. The public is asked to avoid contact with affected bodies of water for at least two days after a sewage discharge due to the health risks from untreated water. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. We got some more clear and dry days ahead. Tonight down around freezing. Tomorrow and Thursday should bring more sunshine. Windy tomorrow in the low 40s again. Thursday should stick to the 30s. This is WBUR 39 degrees in Boston. The time is 5:35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky arrives in Washington at a critical moment for his country. After nearly two years of war and tens of billions of dollars in American military aid, the fight with Russia is at a kind of stalemate. And congressional support is eroding. Behind closed doors today, both Republican and Democratic lawmakers were asking the Biden administration... What are the near-term goals? And also, how does this war end? To parse this, we are joined by NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Hey, Tom. Hey, Mary Louise. You know, it seemed like Ukraine's ability to outmaneuver and outthink Russia for the first months, year, so on of this war, it dazzled so much of the world um, because it was very much a David and Goliath scenario. And now we appear to be at a different point. Where are we in this war? Well, you know, some people say it's an inflection point. I think that's probably right. Now, Ukraine has taken back about 50% of the territory lost to the Russians, obviously a plus, but the has not achieved its goal of cutting off this what so-called Russian land bridge to the south, and that would prevent Russia from supplying its troops in the south. That has not happened. So privately, military officials are saying to me, listen, we're at a stalemate right now. And that has led to a loss of support on Capitol Hill. Tell me how this ends. What can we achieve? They've spent tens of billions of dollars helping Ukraine. So where are we at this point? So, And that's the word Pentagon officials are using when they talk to you privately, stalemate? Yeah, privately they'll talk stalemate. But politically, you know, everyone's on board saying we have to help Ukraine. We have to stop Putin. If we don't stop Putin now, he may threaten NATO countries. So that's kind of where we are politically. How long before the assistance runs out? Well, right now, there's about $4.8 billion left in American aid to Ukraine. And the plan is to kind of dole that out, parse it out over time, maybe weeks, maybe months, until a supplemental bill can be uh, approved 
which would have roughly $47 billion for Ukraine. But again, that's not going to happen this week or next in Congress. You're clearly looking at next year for a vote. Talk one more moment about what exactly that money is buying, like the specifics of what American dollars are funding for Ukraine. Well, a a lot of it is weaponry, everything from uh, Patriot missile systems to demining equipment again, artillery shells, tanks, uh, cold weather gear, pretty much everything. Also paying the salaries of some Ukrainian folks, police and first responders, so pretty much everything. And some of that money is also used to support U.S. troops in Europe, some of whom are training Ukrainian forces. So it's a it's a lot of money. It's tens of billions of dollars. So it's pretty much everything. Yeah. You mentioned cold weather gear. I will point out the obvious. It's winter. Um, is that contributing to the sense of urgency that President Zelensky is trying to convey on this trip to Washington? Absolutely. They need uh, defensive missiles because Russia is going to spend the winter trying to take out energy infrastructure to freeze Ukrainian civilians. So they desperately need defensive missiles to prevent that from happening, prevent Russian missiles and drones from attacking that key infrastructure. I want to circle back to the conversations you are having with officials at the Pentagon and how they view this and what kind of conversations they are having with their counterparts in Ukraine. Well, initially, this big spring offensive we've been talking about, they want them to concentrate all their combat power pushing south to break again that land bridge to get to the Sea of Azov. The Ukrainians didn't do that. They sent some of their troops to the east to push the Russians back. They sent some to the south. And the Americans say they weren't aggressive enough at pushing south. And the Ukrainians said, listen, we have all these minefields we have to get through. And the Americans say, well, we've given you demining equipment. You should be able to do it. But they didn't have the equipment that's really needed, that the Americans would use in a minefield like that. First, you use aircraft to attack enemy forces. Then you bring in huge numbers of tanks and mortars to push back, keep those uh, uh, enemy forces down so while you can clear the mines. Ukrainians didn't have all of that, so they were kind of stuck trying to get rid of these mines to move forward. And then the Russians had all these defensive uh, trenches, huge numbers of them, very sophisticated, that they just had a hard time getting through. Hence, we're at a kind of a stalemate. Can this war be won? Can Russia be defeated militarily in Ukraine? No. And uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, who retired, General Mark Milley, He said earlier this year, neither side can win. Russia can't take the whole country over, and Ukraine can't kick out every Russian soldier. So the only way this is really going to end is if Putin decides, I've had enough, I'm pulling my troops out. No one thinks that it's possible. Uh, Is NPR's Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman talking about the future of a war that feels very uncertain. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. The Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else on the planet, and this year's Arctic report card released today from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration offers a view of those rapid and dramatic changes. Barbara Moran from member station WBUR has the key takeaways. This past summer in the Arctic was the warmest since 1900, and the heat and early snowmelt fed climate disasters across the wider region like flooding in Juneau and record wildfires in Canada. The Arctic is now more relevant to us than it has ever been before. 
That's NOAA Administrator Rick Spinrad. He says these disasters are a wake-up call for the lower 48. In many cases, what we're seeing is, by a few years, the kinds of impacts that we're going to see elsewhere in the country. Climate change in the Arctic, caused by burning fossil fuels, doesn't just show us the future. It also directly influences global climate change. There's a saying that what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. Take Greenland, for instance. Its melting ice sheet adds to global sea level rise. And it lost more than 150 billion tons of ice last year. On the upside, that was less than usual. The loss was not as large as recent years, not because it wasn't warm. In fact, it was very warm. Rick Toman is the lead editor of the Arctic Report Card. He says the Greenland ice sheet melted a lot, but then there was snow. What uh, saved Greenland's proverbial bacon this year is that they had a lot of precipitation uh, falling as snow from last autumn, really right into early June. Toman says that monitoring of land and sea ice across the Arctic is an ongoing effort. And this year's report also captures some of the indigenous knowledge brought to the table especially when it comes to marine mammals in Alaska. Rather than just um, having an understanding of, okay, seals are here, we get an understanding of why. What are the sea ice conditions that lead to the seals being there? That's Roberta Turuk Glen Barade. She's with the Alaska Arctic Observatory and Knowledge Hub, where indigenous observers collect data on weather and wildlife. We don't think of ourselves as um, victims of climate change. We're strong people with strong knowledge systems um, and a strong desire to share our knowledge. Glenn Barade hopes scientists and indigenous knowledge holders can create a shared understanding of the changing Arctic, which will ultimately help people adapt to an altered environment. For NPR News, I'm Barbara Moran in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After an extensive search, a Minnesota commission is about to pick a new state flag. The public process saw thousands of entries pour in. Some had expected nods to the state's motto as the North Star State. But others came in with a little more buzz featuring the state's unofficial bird, the mosquito. Minnesota Public Radio's Dana Ferguson reports. In a crowded rotunda at the Mall of America, visitors pause and cast their gaze upward. Overhead, six finalists for the new Minnesota state flag are on display. That one's a little too plain. I would like that one if the star was yellow. That's Lena Calyot of St. Paul. She was glad to see the new options. I think it's kind of neat. I like that they're changing it, and I like the kinds of things they've come up with. But the flags also generated some blowback from shoppers passing by. And I like the old one, you know. That's Sarah Sullivan of Mankato. She visited the display with her two sons. I don't know, I feel like we're, we're kind of doing away with a lot of the history and we're kind of getting, you know, out with the old and with the new. Minnesota's current flag features a busy seal at the center of a royal blue sheet. The design became the official flag in 1893, though it's seen some tweaks along the way. But the Democratic-led legislature this year charged the state emblem's redesign commission to replace it with a new flag. 
They deem the existing one cluttered and racially insensitive. It depicts basically a, a white farmer displacing an indigenous person riding on a horseback. That's Democratic State Representative Mike Freiberg, one of the architects behind the redesign process. And that was very deliberate by the designers to depict, you know, the white people basically eliminating Native Americans from Minnesota. The commission has to select a flag that, quote, accurately and respectfully reflects Minnesota's shared history, resources, and diverse cultural communities. The designs can't single out a community or person in particular. Really pay attention to the comments that you get from people. That's Lee Harold, a self-professed flag expert. He gave the commission some advice last month. I have a flag store. And when people come in, I can see if they're just buying a piece of bread off the shelf or you can see in their eyes that this means something to them. The call for submissions this fall spurred an outpouring of ideas, ranging from children's drawings to professional mock-ups. Many designs had things in common. They featured stars and loons, water and trees, all symbols that are emblematic of Minnesota. Others got more creative with their interpretations. A couple designers sent images of loons shooting laser beams from their eyes. One cast a hot dish, the Minnesota synonym for casserole, at the center. Here's Commission Vice Chair Anita Gall. We thought there would be a lot, but 2,100 flag designs that exceeded even our, our greatest expectations. At a hearing last month, the panel narrowed the field of thousands of options down to six. One commissioner played an on-the-nose tune, You're a Grand Old Flag. As they reviewed their options, Republican State Representative Bjorn Olson expressed a concern about picking options that could stand the test of time. He considered a top boat-getter that depicted a North Star and a winding river reflecting the sky. I love it, but will I love it when I'm 100 years old? The panel is meeting in St. Paul to choose a winner ahead of the end-of-year deadline. Their pick will wave across the state beginning in May, barring a legislative veto. For NPR News, I'm Dana Ferguson in St. Paul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, what's behind falling inflation? A look at the latest drop still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Canyon Ranch Lennox the all-inclusive wellness resort in the Berkshires. Spa, fitness, gourmet cuisine, and restoration for the holidays and the new year. Wellness and relaxation, a three-hour drive from Boston. Learn more at canyonranch.com. That's canyonranch.com. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It happens next Tuesday, a week from today. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Tonight, the Celtics will welcome the Cleveland Cavaliers to the Garden. Tip-off time is 7.30. Bruins are off until tomorrow night. That's when they take on the Devils down in New Jersey. In the forecast, a nice night ahead. Clear skies. Temperatures just about freezing. Should be windy once again. Then for tomorrow, sunny skies, breezy up around the low 40s. Could have sunshine returning for Thursday, but temperatures should be down in the mid-30s. 39 now in Boston at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Olin College of Engineering, ranked number two for best classroom experience and top internship placements by the Princeton Review, olin.edu. 
WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution at WBUR.org. And thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Lawmakers are urging the Federal Bureau of Prisons to address reports of substandard health care in its facilities. The reaction comes after an NPR investigation detailed the stories of prisoners nationwide going without needed medical care. NPR criminal justice reporter Meg Anderson is here to tell us more. Hi, Meg. Hey, Ari. Uh, before we get to these calls from lawmakers, tell us what you found in your investigation into health care within the BOP. Yeah, so this fall we published the stories of federal prisoners around the country who were not being provided with medical care by the government. Many of them had waited months, some of them even years, for needed treatment. One man waited two years for heart surgery, another went blind waiting for care, and one man who I ended up focusing on waited a year just to get an ultrasound to confirm testicular cancer, and he later died. We also got the records of everyone who died in federal prison in the last decade. That was around 5,000 people, and we found that one in four of those deaths happened at a single prison hospital in North Carolina. It's where the Bureau sends prisoners who are very sick, but we found delays in treatment and other problems there, too. And so who are the lawmakers calling attention to these problems, and what are they saying? So they are Senator Dick Durbin and Senator Chuck Grassley. Um, Both of them are on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Durbin is the chair, and that's the committee tasked with overseeing the Bureau of Prisons. Durbin said he found it, quote, deeply upsetting that families are mourning the loss of their loved ones because they weren't afforded the proper medical care they deserved while incarcerated. And Grassley said that he is, quote, deeply alarmed by reports that the Bureau of Prisons has demonstrated foot dragging when it comes to providing medical care to those in its custody. Are they pushing for specific action? They are. So Durbin called on the federal prison system to address its staffing crisis. This November, the Bureau of Prisons director, Colette Peters, testified before the House that healthcare staffing levels at some prisons are less than 50 percent full. And Grassley is pushing for the Peters position director to be Senate-confirmed. That would add a layer of accountability. Other lawmakers have pushed for more accountability, too. A group of senators introduced a bill last spring to create an ombudsman to investigate issues inside prisons. And I should say a spokesperson for the BOP told me the Bureau, quote, appreciates the senators' focus on this important issue and is committed to working with them on oversight. And since your investigation published, have you heard from more prisoners or their families? Unfortunately, I have, yes, and I'd love for you to hear what they had to say. Tiffany Reese Robinson says her fiancé has been complaining to prison staff of excruciating pain for years. They kind of just brush him off, ignore him. It's like they're playing with his health. Nobody really cares. A father named Roberto, he didn't want to use his last name for fear that his son would be punished, but he told me that his son, who's paraplegic, suffers from almost constant urinary tract infections. They are not treated the same way uh, normal people are, are treated in a hospital. If you committed crime or you did something wrong, you have to pay for it, but, but not, not in such a way. And Beverly Richardson told me her son has needed heart surgery for nearly two years. I'm trying to get my son the help he needs before he dies on me. These are human lives in there. These men have families. 
They have children, for God's sakes. The Bureau of Prisons declined to comment on these individual cases. That's NPR's Meg Anderson. Thank you for your reporting. You're welcome. Details of baseball superstar Shohei Otani's new contract are coming out, and they make for some interesting math. The headline, of course, was that the Dodgers will pay Otani $700 million. What we've now learned is that he'll be paid only $2 million a year for 10 years. To help us make sense of this, we are joined by Jeff Passan of ESPN. Hey there. Hey, Juana. Uh, yeah, where did that other $68 million a year go uh, was the real question and something that's confusing a lot of people right now. Yeah, help us unpack this because, I mean, when I read this headline that he'd inked the $700 million deal, my first impression was that is a heck of a lot of money. And my second question was, is he actually worth it? Can you address both of those? It was a heck of a lot of money, more than any other athlete in professional sports history had been guaranteed. And there was a reason for a number that big. It's because the Dodgers are not going to be paying $680 million of it for another decade plus. And Major League Baseball's collective bargaining agreement, Juana, allows for an unlimited amount of money to be deferred so long as a player is willing to do so. And as we know, there's a very simple tenet in economics. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. Well, a dollar today is worth a lot more than a dollar 10 years from now. So that $700 million number In reality, it's more like $450 million in net present value. And that's the number that Major League Baseball and its accounting is going to use. Okay, lots of numbers there. But I mean, the $680 million in deferred money. Help me understand why a deal like this makes sense for a player like Otani. It makes sense for only a player like Otani. And it makes sense because he is an international superstar who's making more than $50 million off the field with things like endorsements and marketing deals. And he's become not just the face of baseball, but a star internationally on a similar scale to a LeBron James or to a Lionel Messi, somebody who is recognizable across the world. And Otani went to the Dodgers with this contract structure in mind, it allows them to save about $25 million that they can then turn around and reinvest into other players. Remember, Otani Wana spent the first six years of his career with the Los Angeles Angels. Mm-hmm. They were terrible. And there's been few teams in baseball that have won over the last decade quite like the Los Angeles Dodgers. And this positions them in both getting Otani as well as having the contract to win even more. This is a juicy story for folks like me and you who love the sport about this incredible player. But for people who don't follow baseball like we do, what's the big takeaway here? Well, the takeaway is that if you are the definition of the word unique, which is what Shohei Otani is, because if you don't know about him, he hits and he pitches. He is Babe Ruth in modern times. And there are plenty of evaluators who believe he's better than Babe Ruth ever was. And he has changed the game during his six years here. I think it's a banner day 
for baseball fans who want to see the sport grow and for all of the fans who sit there and wish that Shohei Otani had signed this contract with their team, <laughs> uh, I apologize. I, I live in Kansas City. It would have been wonderful to see him here, but it, it almost felt like he was destined to become a Dodger, and now that's exactly what he is, Juana. Jeff Passan is a senior MLB insider for ESPN. Jeff, thanks so much. Pleasure's always mine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, a new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance, auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. For decades, Stanley Sagoff has been a family doctor by day and a jazz performer by night. This weekend, he and his band will perform in Cambridge, and the night is taking on new meaning now that Sagoff has received a difficult diagnosis. He talks with us tomorrow here at 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.59. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Wilbur, featuring the return of stand-up comedian Mike Birbiglia for nine sold-out shows. Tickets still available for December 16th at thewilbur.com. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden has announced an additional $20 million for Ukraine as Ukraine's president comes to Washington to call on Congress to keep supporting its country's military effort. Biden warned that Russia is counting on the U.S. to give up on funding Ukraine. It's Tuesday, December 12th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, inflation dipped to 3.1% last month. That's less than half of what it was at the beginning of the year. And there's a vigorous public debate over whether communities should open so-called supervised consumption sites where people addicted to illegal drugs can go to be monitored and use the drugs more safely. As the debate continues, some families are setting up ways to monitor their loved ones using drugs at home. It's an effort to save lives. The second half of our special report coming up on WBUR. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden and Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky put up a united front at the White House today. 
Congress has yet to move on a $110 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other security needs. But Biden said Ukraine is showing it can stand up to Russian aggression. And he said the U.S. needs to do its part. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. Even as Biden pushed for more U.S. aid, Zelensky was hit with questions about whether his military can win the war. Fighting for freedom. We stand firm. No matter what Putin tries, he hasn't won any victories. Thanks to Ukraine's success, success in defense, other European nations are safe from the Russian aggression, unlike in the past. Separately, Biden reiterated U.S. support for Israel in its war against Hamas, even as the U.N. General Assembly called for humanitarian ceasefire there. With Zelensky on Capitol Hill lobbying for more funding for his country's war with Russia, NPR's Domenico Montanaro notes there's little consensus among Americans about whether they want to provide that support. The latest NPR-PBS NewsHour Maris poll finds that people are very much split on what to do. About half of respondents say to provide funding to Ukraine, but almost four in ten say they don't want to fund either the war in Ukraine or the war in Israel. Democrats are more likely to say to fund both conflicts, but Republicans who have grown more populist and isolationist since former President Trump's election in 2016 are more likely to say not to fund either one. But it's not just Republicans. Younger and non-white voters are also more likely to say don't fund either war. And among those saying that they don't want to provide support to either country, non-white respondents were second only to Republican women. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Harvard President Claudine Gay will keep her job. Gay drew fire for testifying to a House committee that calls for genocide against Jews would not necessarily violate student code of conduct. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik turned it a moral failure of Harvard's leadership. NPR's Toby Smith spoke with students on both sides of the issue. One faculty member said he was disappointed by Gay, but that her subsequent apology and promise to reconsider disciplinary policies show she's listening. But in the eyes of grad student Chavez Kestenbaum, the Gay administration has only shown its hypocrisy. These are people who believe for years that words are violence, that calling someone by the wrong pronouns are grounds for dismissal. But all of a sudden, when it comes to anti-Semitism, we wish we could do something about it, but we're so committed to the First Amendment. A Palestinian student, meantime, expressed equal frustration, saying Gay has repressed pro-Palestinian activism. She says Gay should use her platform to more forcefully defend students' rights to free speech. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Stocks gain ground on Wall Street. The Dow up 173 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The suspended chair of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission is asking a judge to open her upcoming administrative hearing to the public. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Shannon O'Brien says she deserves a chance to clear her name and return to her role overseeing the state's $5 billion cannabis industry. The state treasurer suspended O'Brien in September, alleging she made racially and culturally insensitive remarks at work. O'Brien says her words were taken out of context and that Treasurer Deborah Goldberg does not have the authority to remove her. The two were originally supposed to meet behind closed doors last week, but O'Brien petitioned a judge to delay the meeting. In a new court filing, O'Brien asks the same superior court judge to order that the hearing be public. The treasurer will be represented by the attorney general's office and is expected to file her response in court tomorrow. O'Brien is not the only high-level suspension at the embattled commission. Two top managers also were suspended last week. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. About 60 nurses in the Visiting Nurses Association of Boston could soon begin a two-week strike. Their union announced today that they have unanimously authorized a potential walkout. The healthcare workers are seeking better staffing and increased wages they say they need to keep up with the demands of the industry. A former state social worker accused of posing as a Boston public school student pleaded not guilty today to charges including forgery and larceny. 32-year-old Shelby Hewitt allegedly created fake identities as two Department of Children and Families employees to pull off the scheme. Her lawyers have argued that she has had a lifelong history of mental health struggles. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu appears ready to endorse Nikki Haley for the Republican presidential nomination. The announcement by the governor is expected to come this evening, as WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. Sununu plans to attend a rally with Nikki Haley this evening at a Manchester ski area. The New Hampshire governor has previously indicated he was leaning toward endorsing Haley in her run for the Republican presidential nomination, and sources cited by WMUR-TV in Manchester say that will happen tonight. Haley is the former governor of South Carolina who served as U.N. ambassador in the Trump administration. In New Hampshire, she's established herself as the leading alternative to Trump but she still remains a distant second to the former president. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. MBTA writers have been named the Globe magazine's Bostonians of the Year, and it says they deserve a more dependable T-system. The publication calls MBTA writers the lifeblood of the city and the region who play an increasingly critical role in keeping Boston competitive during its post-COVID recovery. The magazine says commuters keep riding the T despite its slowdowns, station closures, derailments, and more. 38 degrees now in the Boston area should have a nice night tonight. Chilly, windy, down around freezing. Tomorrow and Thursday should be sunny again. Tomorrow in the low 40s. Thursday should stick to the 30s. 38 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with leaders on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue here in Washington today, seeking more U.S. funding for his war against Russia. After Zelensky visited with lawmakers from both parties on Capitol Hill, he went to the White House, where President Biden tried to give an optimistic message at their joint press conference. And Ukraine will emerge from this war, proud, free, and firmly rooted in the West, unless we walk away. But Biden also said he could not promise that Congress would come through with more money for the fight. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez was in the room for the press conference. Hey, Franco. Hey, Ari. You've been covering President Biden since the start of this war, before that even, and you've been to Ukraine a couple of times. So what struck you about this meeting today? I mean, what struck me is that the message has shifted. Biden used to say all the time that the United States would be with Ukraine as long as it takes. But today we really heard something quite different. Biden said the United States will be with Ukraine, quote, as long as we can. And he reflects that the visit comes as the White House says the well basically is running dry. Officials say the U.S. will run out of money to support Ukraine by the end of the month. And Congress is actually supposed to leave for the holidays in a matter of days. But Biden does tell President Zelensky that he shouldn't give up hope. Well, what happens if the money runs out? I mean, really, there's a lot at stake, a lot at stake. Biden says Congress really risks giving President, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him if the aid package fails to pass. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must 
we must, we must prove him wrong. Biden also emphasizes that it'll be even more expensive for the United States if they don't support Ukraine. U.S. officials say Russia has its eyes on other nations, NATO countries, who the United States would be obligated to protect. And Zelensky described Ukraine as the first line of defense and said other European nations are right now safe because of their success, Ukraine's success, over the last year holding off Russia. Well, before he was at the White House, he was on Capitol Hill. What kind of reception did Zelensky get from lawmakers there? Zelensky got a warm reception. Uh, you know, he tried to explain some of the military strategy and his plans for the next year. He also talked about some of the concerns about corruption that senators and members of Congress have, and he tried his best to answer those. But really, there is still a very big fight over border security policy, and members of Congress really don't appear to be budging. Republicans insist that Biden needs to do more about the record number of migrants crossing the southern border. And really, that includes mainstream Republicans. It's not just right-wingers. It's mainstream Republicans, traditional Republicans, like Senator Mitt Romney, who agrees with the president that defending Ukraine is in the national security interests of the United States. But more needs to be done on the border. Well, is Zelensky going home to Ukraine empty-handed? Not entirely. President Biden says he's directing the Pentagon to you know, send another $200 million from money that Congress approved last year to help Ukraine. But it does look like the broader package of new money, $61 billion, is stalled out. Now, some senators say there's still hope for talks this month on those border policies. They're supposed to continue to negotiate over the next few days, and they may extend it. At least some are saying that. And Biden says he is willing to make compromises, but he didn't go into any specifics tonight. That's uh, NPR's Franco Ordonez at the White House. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Filling your gas tank or your grocery cart puts a smaller dent in your wallet these days. Gas prices have fallen sharply in recent weeks, and grocery prices are starting to level off as well. Those are some of the most visible costs that consumers encounter on a regular basis, and they helped to keep the overall inflation rate in check last month. This welcome news comes as the Federal Reserve is meeting this week to decide how to proceed with interest rates. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi. So, Scott, inflation has been gradually cooling off in recent months. What what did you learn from today's report? Today's report tells us that that cooling trend continued into November. Uh, prices overall last month were up 3.1% from a year ago. That's a slightly smaller increase than we saw in October. There was a big drop in gasoline prices, which helped to offset rising rents and other expenses. And what's more, supermarket prices are up less than 2% over the last 12 months. Food economist David Ortega of Michigan State University says that's the smallest annual increase in almost two and a half years. When it comes to food, you know, it hits very close to home because we go to the grocery store on a weekly basis. And so consumers are really attuned to the price level. And we're in the holiday season. So, you know, a, a lot of the holiday celebrations center around food. So it's something that people are noticing. If you're baking during these holidays, you'll be glad to know the cost of eggs has come back to earth. After soaring last year, egg prices are down about 22% over the last 12 months. Mm. Other grocery prices are still up, but they're no longer climbing as fast as they had been. Okay, that's some good news. Scott, what else is getting cheaper and what's getting more expensive? 
a lot of travel-related things are getting cheaper, uh, airfares, hotel rooms, also furniture and appliances. What's still going up in price is mostly services, restaurant meals, car repair, and, of course, housing. Uh, housing costs are expected to moderate over time based on what we're seeing with new leases, but that has been a slow process. And, of course, housing is a big part of many people's budgets. Right. And, Scott, inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are meeting this week here in Washington. How are they likely to respond to today's report? You know, this report, along with the jobs report we got last week, is pretty much just what the Fed wants to see. Inflation is gradually coming down. It's not back to the Fed's target of 2%, but it is moving in that direction. And this time last year, a lot of people thought that to get inflation under control, the Fed was going to have to slam the brake so hard with higher interest rates, it would send the economy into recession and throw millions of people out of work. Instead, employers have added more than 2.5 million jobs in the first 11 months this year. And while polls suggest a lot of people are still grumpy about the economy, that may be starting to change. Uh, Joe Brusuelis is chief U.S. economist at RSM. He says wages are now going up faster than prices, so people are starting to see a real bump in their buying power. Where we're at now with the economy, this is what a soft landing looks like, and this is what full employment feels like. And that's why we're optimistic about the direction of the U.S. economy heading into 2024. Now, nobody thinks the Fed's going to declare victory over inflation this week. Interest rates are likely to stay high for a while to come. But policymakers will offer some guidance tomorrow about where they think rates might go next year. And Bruce Willis thinks by sometime around the middle of 2024, the Fed might be ready to start cutting interest rates. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks as always. You're welcome. Why do songbirds sing so much? Well, a new study suggests they have to to stay in shape. Here's NPR's Ari Daniel. A few years ago, I was out at dawn in South Carolina low country, a mix of swamp and trees draped in Spanish moss. The sound of birdsong filled the air. It's the same in lots of places. Once the light of day switches on, songbirds launch their serenade. I mean, why birds sing is relatively well answered. Iris Adam is a behavioral neuroscientist at the University of Southern Denmark. For many songbirds, males sing to impress a female and uh, attract them as mate, and also birds sing to defend their territory. But Adam says these reasons don't explain why songbirds sing so darn much. There's an insane drive to sing. For some, it's hours every day. That's a lot of energy. Plus, singing can be dangerous. As soon as you sing, you reveal yourself, like where you are, that you even exist, where your territory is. All of that immediately is out in the open for predators, for everybody. Why take that risk? Adam wondered whether the answer might lie in the muscles that produce birdsong, and if those muscles require regular exercise. So she designed a series of experiments on zebra finches, little Australian songbirds with striped heads and a bloom of orange on their cheeks. One of Adam's first experiments involved taking males and severing the connection between their brains and their singing muscles. Already after two days, they had lost some of their performance, and after three weeks, they were back to the same level when they were juveniles and never had sung before. Next, she left the finches intact, but prevented them from singing for a week by keeping them in the dark almost around the clock. The first two, three days, it's quite easy, but the longer the experiment goes, the more they are like, I need to sing. (laughs) So then you need to tell them, like, stop, (laughs) you can't sing. After a week, the bird's singing muscles lost half their strength. But does that impact what the resulting song sounds like? Here's a male before the seven days of darkness. 
and here he is after. And I don't hear a difference. It doesn't matter, though, if we can hear the difference. It matters if the females can, because they're the ones the males are trying to impress. And six of the nine females preferred the song that came from a male who'd been using his singing muscles daily. Adam's conclusion? Songbirds need to exercise their vocal muscles to produce top performance song. If they don't sing, they lose performance, their vocalizations get less attractive to females, and that's bad. This may help explain songbirds' incessant singing, a kind of daily vocal calisthenics to keep their instruments in tip-top shape. The research appears in the journal Nature Communications. It's significant because not many groups are studying in such detail the muscles. Ana Amador is a neuroscientist at the University of Buenos Aires. She calls the study impressive. What they are highlighting is that uh, you need a lot of practice to achieve a mastery in what you're doing. And the findings may have something to say about human voices. Iris Adam again. If you apply the bird results to the humans, any time you stop speaking for whatever reason, you might experience a loss in vocal performance. Just take a singer who's recovering from a cold or someone who's had vocal surgery and might need a little rehab. Adam says one day songbirds could help us improve how we train and restore our own voices too. Ari Daniel, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, a recent court ruling could change the decades-old commissions model for buying and selling houses by making it easier for sellers to negotiate commissions. The realtor education teaches realtors against going into a listing agreement that has less than 5%. What could this ruling mean for realtors? Business news coming up starting at 6.30. Stocks closed higher for a fourth day today. The Dow picked up nearly a half percent. S&P rose about the same to its highest level since January of last year. The Nasdaq picked up seven-tenths of a percent. It's going to cost you less to fill up the tank. The average price in the state is five cents less than it was last week. It's $3.31 a gallon. That's a 15-cent drop from a month ago. The dip is thanks to low oil prices. And U.S. lawmakers want more health support for commercial fishermen. Senators, including Ed Markey of Massachusetts, want to expand a program to protect fishermen's well-being to include substance use disorder. They say the demanding work takes a physical and mental toll on fishermen. The proposal would double federal funding for the existing program to $12 million. It's 619. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger and food insecurity in the Northeast by donating to regional food banks and local pantries during the holiday season. More information at OceanStateJobLot.com. Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get a first crack at tickets? We're now scheduling great events through the first half of next year. Go to WBUR Events Newsletter at WBUR.org slash newsletters.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar, with modern American cuisine and signature dishes like crab-crusted haddock and superfood salad. Eight locations in Greater Boston, burtonsgrill.com. And Emerson Colonial Theater, presenting Most Wonderful Time of the Year, an evening with the Broadway Sinfonietta, an all-women and majority women of color orchestra, serving up a family-friendly blend of pop, Broadway, and Christmas classics. December 22nd and 23rd only. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a vigorous public debate about illegal drug use and whether to allow supervised consumption or overdose prevention sites. Those are clinics where people using drugs are monitored to make sure they don't overdose and die. In private, some family members take it upon themselves. I want people to stay alive. That's Renee, whose story we began this morning. WBUR reporter Martha Biebinger begins part two with Renee in her kitchen. Renee was making supper late one afternoon when her daughter Brooke arrived, unexpectedly, clearly in withdrawal. Renee and Brooke had been through a lot. Renee's sole mission became keeping Brooke alive. In the kitchen, Renee watched Brooke pull a needle and drugs out of her bag. She kind of gathered up all of her stuff and started walking off towards the hallway bathroom. And immediately in my brain, I said no. Because the bathroom Brooke headed for is small. If she got in that bathroom and shut the door and fell out, overdosed, there's no way I'd be able to get that door open with her leaning against it. So Renee did something she'd never done before. She asked Brooke to stay. She was so sick. She was going to use carelessly. It it took no time at all for my mind to process that whole situation and say, Brooke, you got to do this here, babe. Renee remembers turning to face the kitchen sink and give Brooke some privacy. She looked back when she heard soft sobs. She had stuck herself unsuccessfully so many times that she had blood running down the back of her hand and dripping off of her fingertips onto the floor. Renee, who has medical training, helped her daughter clean up and calm down. After the shot, Renee sat with Brooke until the danger of a fatal fentanyl overdose had passed. What has stayed with Brooke years later, when she's no longer injecting drugs, is the certainty in that moment that she was loved. And she didn't, you know, judge me for what I was doing. She just wanted me to be all right. It was weird, though. I ain't gonna lie, it was weird. Some parents would go way beyond weird and call what Renee did that day irresponsible or even criminal. Others are quietly doing something similar, an ear pressed against a bedroom or bathroom door, hoping they can intervene if needed before it's too late. Renee knows that what worked for her to keep Brooke alive won't be right for every family. I hope I give them permission to love their loved one the way they see fit. There's no blueprint for this. But for Renee, a blueprint did emerge that day in the kitchen, what might be called home-based overdose prevention. Renee stood watch with Brooke again, and then with some of Brooke's friends. These days, Renee monitors drug use occasionally for a dozen or so people she's met while passing out clean needles and Narcan, a brand of the overdose reversal drug, which she keeps handy too. Got our Narcan here, you know, so if anything were to happen, we're ready. Today, Renee's backyard is a temporary overdose prevention or supervised consumption site. Her first guest is Christina, a mother of four. Where did that baggie go? I had a little bit in it. 
We're not using full names and have altered some voices because some of what the participants talk about could be illegal. Christina is anxious, shaky, and can't find a vein. Renee presses several spots on Christina's arm and locates one. The shot is done in seconds. But now I want her to sit here with me for a few minutes just to make sure she's... We can cut that fan on and get you some water. If Christina took a lethal dose of fentanyl, it will knock her out fast. At Renee's, Christina will not have to worry about being raped or robbed if she nods off. After five minutes or so, the two women stand, hug, and Renee walks Christina to her ride. This is seriously all it takes to keep somebody alive. People die of overdoses because they're by themselves. Renee says she's reversed about 30 overdoses in the past few years, doing her part to tackle a grim fact. Most people found dead after an overdose were alone. In Renee's home, there are some rules. Do not show up unannounced, never leave drugs behind, and people have to take turns. I mean, I can't revive but one person at a time. I'm good, but I ain't that good. The American Medical Association and other leading healthcare groups have endorsed overdose prevention sites, but supporters in almost every state are afraid to open them under current drug laws. Some lawmakers, police, and prosecutors push to ban these sites, saying they increase violence and property crimes, although studies show this has not occurred at the two sites in the U.S. Opponents also argue that people with an addiction should be sent to treatment, not a place that enables drug use. Renee says people will use safe space or not. I enable them to leave of their own volition and not on an ambulance gurney or in a body bag. That's what I enable. Renee doesn't just enable people to survive their addiction. She also offers treatment. Sometimes that starts here, too, in her backyard. You can get your car and drive it behind the shed and pull it right back here. A, a working mom who Renee's known for years, arrives just to pick up clean needles and naloxone. A tells Renee she's trying to wean herself off fentanyl, only injecting once or twice a day, just enough to prevent full withdrawal. I used to not be sick. A wants to get on Suboxone, a drug that combines an opioid and naloxone to curb cravings and prevent an overdose. But her local treatment program told her she'd have to wait 72 hours between her last shot of fentanyl and starting Suboxone. A says she tried and decided she'd rather die. You just think we'll just get sick and get it over with. I, I don't know why. I don't know why it's so hard. Renee listens as A starts to cry. Then Renee describes another way to start Suboxone. It's called microdosing and is used at many medical centers. As soon as A can no longer tolerate the fentanyl withdrawal, she'll take a small dose of Suboxone and slowly transition to the new drug. Renee says she's done this for half a dozen people, even though she can't prescribe Suboxone. So people like me have to break the law. We have to risk everything still to help people like her. Sometime soon, Renee will find a way to get Suboxone. She wants to have it in hand when A calls or comes by, because the window of opportunity between a last shot, the decision to start treatment, and gut-punching withdrawal might be just a few hours. All she's got to do now is look at me and say, I'm ready. That's the end of the conversation. A wipes her face as she weighs Renee's offer. She says she isn't ready yet, but is close. What matters to A in this moment 
is knowing that Renee will do whatever she can to help, whether A starts treatment or not. It does give me hope. You know, it gives me hope that she hasn't given up on me. I think if there was more of that, it's, I can't imagine how different things could be. Renee's work is helping make a difference for her daughter. Brooke says she's no longer addicted to opioids. If there's a line Renee is not willing to cross to continue keeping Brooke, Christina, and A alive, Renee says she hasn't found it yet. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales. Proud to support Boston Medical Center and their Supporting Our Families Through Addiction and Recovery program. Committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. And the Music Emporium. Guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com.